Well, good morning. Really? Thank you. There we go. Sing a song like that, and we are reminded whew, of how much God loves us in spite of ourselves. And that is such good news. And it's really the only thing that allows me to even any of us who get up here to come and stand in front of you and open God's word because we're all broken, but God loves us and sent his son for us and took care of all of that. So grab your Bibles. Today we are going to take a brief diversion from our series in 1 Corinthians. Um, We're going to go over to the book of Matthew today, specifically chapter 14, verses 22 to 23. Um, I got a call from Lee this morning saying that he wasn't well. And out of an abundance of caution for you all, he felt that he needed to stay home. So Sam and I drew straws. And... A couple of hours ago, it turns out that I'm the one who gets to open God's word with you today. So, if you're using the YouVersion app this morning, don't follow. That's Lee's sermon probably for next week. Um, You just have to do your best to follow along. And you may have heard this before. Shocking, but you're like goldfish. So, you've already long since forgotten. The funnier part of this... uh, this kind of a story, when we were going through church planters' assessment, um, we were part of another church, Lee and I, and the governing board that oversaw church planting said, we want you both to go through this. I said, I'm not going to be a planting pastor. I'm, not gonna, I'm just the music guy. Uh, and they said, well, we want you to do this anyway. And one of the things you had to do was preach a sermon. And it was just a little 10-minute deal to get up there. And so my sermon, I got up and said, well... You're probably wondering why you're getting me today. And it was supposed to be the very first sermon for your church. Um, And I just said, Lee got a bad case of, or a bad batch of nachos down at the Mariners game last night, and so you're stuck listening to me. Oddly enough, that sermon was from 1 Corinthians, but it was last week's passage, so you're not getting that one two times in a row. Well, today we're coming to another one of the more well-known stories in the Gospels, Jesus walking on the water. Now, preaching on this passage is always a bit intimidating because everyone knows this story. There are so many sermons on it for me to steal from. Um, but everyone, everyone, all of you know this story. There are so many sermons. It's very likely that some of you in this room have even preached your own sermon on this passage. But regardless of your familiarity with it, it's where we are at today. So we are going to read Matthew Chapter 14, starting at verse 22 through verse 33. And why don't you stand with me as we read this together. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, this is Jesus, and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But Pardon me, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got to the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. God, we thank you that you have given us such an amazing story that so many of us have gone to in times of trouble when we are worried, when we are struggling with faith. God, we just pray that your spirit would guide us through this and allow it to cause change in us to put our faith in you in great and amazing ways. We pray in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. So verse 22 starts out right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. So we're starting today in a place where people have just seen something amazing happen. The crowds have just had their needs met in a miraculous way. The disciples have just had the experience of being part of, a dis- part of dispensing this actual miracle themselves. Everyone is on a high. It's a good time. But then Jesus does something that's fairly interesting, as he's prone to do. I mean, he's just killed it, right? He's just, he's just fed 5,000 people. 5,000 people. It's a huge crowd. It's a big miracle. He's the Messiah, and people are starting to get the picture But instead of dropping the big, I am that I am on them, what does he do? He sends them away. It's a weird, it's kind of a weird event to take place right now. Now, for those of you who really need to take notes, you're going to be frustrated with me today. Um, I wasn't even going to put any points on the screen, but, you know, there was time. You know, two hours of prep is just plenty of time to get all that together, but I was worried that some of you might spontaneously combust if you weren't able to take some notes. So I added some stuff for you. It's both profound and tweetable if you need to. Um, The first thing, the first point that we're going to see here in our passage is that following Jesus can be difficult. It can, and I don't think anyone in here would disagree with that. Pardon my microphone. And a couple of things in this passage are going to point to this idea. One is our sub-point here, that Jesus does stuff that seems weird at the time, but makes sense later. I have a college education. That's your your sub-point there. Look at verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Why make the disciples and the crowds leave? In Matthew's account, we're not really given a reason. Over in the book of John, we are. John chapter 6, verses 14 to 15 said this, When the people saw the sign that he had done, this was the feeding of the 5,000, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So momentum is building. People are seeing the things that Jesus is doing. They're hearing his teaching. More and more followers, more and more people are starting to think that he is the prophet who was to come, right? The Messiah. But remember, Israel has almost always interpreted the promise of the Messiah to be a military deliverer, an earthly king, the one who they thought was going to come and free them from the great oppressor and make Israel awesome. It sounds good, right? What better way to get your message out than by being the king of the people that you're trying to reach? Authority, power, platform. The disciples would have thought this was a good idea. 
But this wasn't God's plan. So Jesus breaks up everything before that can take place. He does stuff that seems weird at the time, but probably makes sense later. We read in Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, God always has a plan that at first glance seems counterintuitive. And generally speaking, this drives us crazy. We can't handle it. We need him to do things our way in our time, but that's not how it works. Jesus' plan was to become king. We know that. But not in the way that his people thought. His plan was the cross, right? His death, burial, and resurrection. But the cross didn't make sense. It couldn't. Not yet, anyway. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And a little bit further on, he says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block, folly to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is what? It's wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we know this, right? Like, we we get the idea, generally speaking, So why do we get so impatient and angry when God doesn't do things our way? Why can't we just trust him to be God and follow him? It's not easy, right? What we want, we expect to get it. Because we think we know what's best. This is how God needs to answer this prayer. Right? This microphone is going to be the end of me this morning. I apologize. Immediately following John's account of Jesus walking on the water, we're told that the people who had taken part in the feeding of the 5,000 got into boats to go and look for Jesus. And when they find him, they start giving him a hard time for leaving. And this is how that conversation plays out. This isn't going to be on the screen. And if you can come over with me to John 6 in your Bibles, you can read this along as well. Chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You who are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I love that. Looking for what the people thought they needed, right? You do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, or pardon me, that which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, on me, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? These are the people who have just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. Keep that in mind. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. He's talking about himself, in case you were wondering. And the people said to him, Sir, 
Give us this bread always. Okay, so they're starting to get it, right? Or maybe they're just looking for this sweet, sweet bread from heaven. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jump down to verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and get this, and they died. They got what they thought they needed, what they wanted, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, speaking of himself again, so that one may eat of it and not die. And they all got it, and they followed Jesus with joy in their hearts. That's not what the passage says. Verse 52 starts out by saying, The Jews then disputed among themselves. Verse 60 says, When many of his disciples, right, the ones closest to him, when they heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And most sadly, in verse 66, we read after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. All because Jesus does and says stuff that doesn't make sense in the now. The last or first, right? Lose your life to save it. Love your enemies. And it's because his ways are higher than ours. And that makes things difficult. But not impossible. Because he gives us what we need to get the job done. And one of the tools he gives us, something that's so often ignored, something that I fail at over and over and over again, and even preached a sermon on it not that long ago, when it comes to attempting to follow and emulate Jesus, is found in verse 23. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, I could be wrong, but any of you that have been involved in any kind of ministry or any kind of work for that matter could probably agree with me that one of the last things we think to do after some hard work, like on a Sunday morning for those of us who are pastors, we get here early and we work hard. This is actually hard work. Just, it's, it's not just a real quick thing that we do. On a Sunday after preaching, my first thought isn't to go hide in the mountains to pray. It's more like get home, tell the kids to be quiet, put on the Jays game, and just fall asleep. But that's not the example that we're given in Jesus at all. When he's tired, he prays. When things look like trouble, he prays. When he's in a tough spot, he prays. When he's celebrating, he prays. He turns to the Father time and time again, knowing where his power ultimately comes from. And this has got to be our posture as well. In all likelihood, this is what would allow us to trust his calling, whatever that may be, to hear from him, to call on him, to find rest in him. Our knee-jerk reaction should be prayer. And I wish I could stand here and tell you to just follow my lead, but this is still, like I'm old now, not as old as some of you, and those of you who are older are probably thinking the same thing. By now we should have this, but God is still continuing his work in us. Following Jesus can be difficult. It could be so much easier, but we do this to ourselves time and time again. Another thing we see in this passage, and this is for you note takers, just because Jesus calls you to something 
It doesn't mean the task will be smooth sailing. In fact, it often means the opposite. I can't not take notes. (laughs) I mean, it's another thing that seems weird at the time, but makes sense later. Look at the end of verse 23 through verse 26. When the evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. There's a saying that gets bandied about in Christian circles, and it's one of my total faves. Where God guides, he provides. You've heard that, right? There's great truth in it. But I think we often get confused as to what this actually means. This phrase is all over the place. Pinterest? Is Pinterest still a thing? It's on Pinterest. Definitely, some of you maybe follow an Instagram account that puts out these little cool little graphics that remind us of little things, you know, Instagrams, inspirational grams. Is that a thing? It's probably an account. If it's not, somebody in here should get on that. But anyway, a quick Google image search brought these to me. Where God guides, he provides. Now, can any of you guess what struck me with these pictures? Aside from some poor font choices, some of them on Google have real bad spelling as well. But anybody? Yeah, look at where God is leading these people. (laughs) Who doesn't want to go to there? Right, there's the beach, somebody's got a lake house, mountains, you've got this farm. Like, I mean, that's amazing. Who doesn't want to go there? Apparently, he is guiding most people to retirement, right? To a sweet summer home that they can take in epic sunsets. But the one that really caught my attention when going through these was this one. Where God guides, he provides. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Now, don't... If you're into Canva and doing Instagram, this is terrible. Don't do this. But artistic merit aside, it has this reference to the passage from Proverbs. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Do you know what it says? Many of you have this memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Okay, so Luke, can you go back? Go back one slide to this one again. That's the one. Thank you. You cannot expect me to believe that when Solomon penned those words, he had this picture and this saying in mind. First off, the path is not straight, right? It's an important part. Second, when in the world do we have to trust God to go down a path that looks like this? We just go down paths like that. It's obvious that that's where we should go. Now, I think this is a more honest depiction of that. You can go to the the slide after the verse there, Luke. That's the one. Now, you see that straight path? There is actually, oh, yeah, over on the side there, there's a path that goes across the water. It's pretty great. Also, those trees, they are covered in spider's webs. Those are spiders' webs. Thousands and thousands of spiders. You're welcome for the nightmares. Australia is awesome. But really, 
This is a more accurate thing. It's scary. You can kill that, Luke. Sometimes we confuse our desires with God's leading. A while back, the Babylon Bee, it was this like a satirical Christian news website, they posted an article with the headline, Everything Local Man Feels Led to Do, He Coincidentally Really Likes. Another one read, Worship Leader Called by God to Be Famous and Wealthy. Right? Now, I'm not pointing that out to say that God doesn't call people to pleasant things. That's not true. That is heresy. God does call us to glorious things. But where God guides, he provides, doesn't mean sunsets and mountaintops. And many of you are aware of our journey as a foster family. We have had the privilege for caring for 10 children over the last five or six years, nine of whom we've had to say goodbye to. Some were short-term, so we weren't super attached, but some, some of those goodbyes, they tore our heart out. It was hard. All of us, our whole family. But by God's grace, it looks like we're going to have permanency with the little one that we have right now, the one who's been with us for four years. But regardless of that, what God has led us to do as a family is hard. It's scary. Look at verse 26 again. When the disciples saw him, Jesus, walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Who are they seeing? Jesus. What's their response? Fear. They think he's a ghost. Jesus is coming to do something awesome to show them who he is, but the superstitions they grew up believing distract them from what Jesus wants to do in the moment. His provision evokes fear because they're just not getting it like us. You can remember the life of John the Baptist. God led him to preach the good news, which led him to prison, which led to him having his head removed. God's provision, it wasn't deliverance. It was heaven. Being given the strength to face the worst kind of trouble and stay faithful. But why? Why does God work this way? We rarely get the specific answer in the midst of something difficult. Why? But we do have these encouraging words in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, it's all about Jesus shaping us into who he wants us to be, increasing our faith so the kind of failures that we see in this passage, the kind of failures that we see day to day in our own lives, they don't have to happen. Jesus made the disciples. He commanded them to get into a boat when there was a storm coming. He knew that. His leading was the storm. His provision, though, was what? It was himself. He was coming to them. The problem came when they couldn't see him for who he was. And that's us too. Following Jesus can be difficult. The next thing we see in our passage is that following Jesus can be easy. And we've already gone through these verses a bit, but let's take a look at parts of them again. Verses 25 and 27, or through 27. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
following Jesus can be easy because, well, Jesus is God and he loves us and he wants us to have faith in his power and bring glory to him. Get writing. Jesus came to their struggling boat, walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Now, we're in the miracles portion of scripture here. But there are a lot of liberal scholars who would like to argue around this passage saying things like, Jesus was walking on the shore near the sea where these guys could actually see him. Or that there was a reef or a sandbar in the sea that he was walking on. But then why would Peter start sinking? In the, it's a whole thing. It doesn't really matter. When it comes to passages like this where, where people try to argue the scientific possibilities for God's supernatural interference with physics, I can't help but think of a quote from one of my favorite theologians where he was discussing the question, could Jonah really have survived in the fish in that story? The quote is this, we encounter miraculous stories all the time in the Bible. Jesus heals people. The walls of Jericho fall down. Jesus is raised from the dead. So this is really nothing new. And either we have a worldview that allows for God to intervene in nature or we don't. It's that simple. And I just quoted my boss. So it's good. Jesus comes walking on the sea. Why? To show them that he is God and is over everything. In Mark's record of this account, he says that Jesus meant to pass them by. In Exodus 33, God passes by Moses so he can see God for who he really was. This almost seems like a similar thing here, right? Jesus intends to pass by them so that they can see him, God, walking on the water. Their God is coming to them. Jesus is making a declaration of who he is and not just in what he does, but he also something that he says to them in verse 27. He says, take heart, it is I. They would have heard his voice and known who this was. Now, this is something that I wrestled with a lot in this passage. It seems as though all the translations of this passage interpret the Greek to say, it is I, or it's me. Do any of you know what the literal translation of the Greek here is? It's two words. Ego, EMI. I am. That's big, right? That's a massive thing to the Jewish people for someone to get up in front of you and say, I am, was death for that person, right? Unless they were God. That's an amazing, amazing thing. Not only is Jesus walking on the water, not only has he just multiplied bread and fish to feed thousands, he's using the very words God used when he introduced himself to Moses. Take heart, I am. And when he said this, it had to have caught them by surprise. In John 18, when the chief priests and Pharisees came to arrest Jesus, he asked them who they were looking for. And he said to them, or they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth, and his response was, I am. And we're told that when he said this, they all drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) There is great power in those words. Jesus is showing himself to be God. He's not hiding it. He wants them to trust him and not be afraid, but the disciples just aren't getting what he means. Peter seems to be getting a little bit of it, maybe. I'm not totally sure, but I think so. In verse 28 and 29, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, I'm not totally sure, but if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
What does Jesus say? Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, this is everyone's favorite part of this passage, right? Peter getting out of the boat. It's, it's mine too. We've all, we've all tried it, right? You know, you've been at the pool. It looks pretty sturdy. You've tried to run across, right? Am I the only one? Okay. Peter seems to be catching a hint of who Jesus is, but he's not fully there and really won't be, just like the other disciples until the resurrection. But he sees his master doing something awesome, and he wants a part of it. He says, Lord, if it's you, the Greek there actually is, Lord, if you are, he's just said, I am, if you are, let me do this too. Now, this is the point that almost every sermon I've heard on this, every internet meme, every self-help, feel-good blog post camps out and plants the flag in is the point. You've got to get out there and try. Do something great for God. Build it and they will come. And guess what? That is something that we see here, right? In this small moment, Peter's example of stepping out in faith is a big deal, but we need to believe that God has something bigger and greater that he wants to do. It's not the main point. Matthew is the only gospel that actually has this part of the story in it that we're about to read. And not that it isn't a part, an important part. All of scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking. The living word of God is what we're talking about. But the focus of this story isn't Peter. It's Jesus. Mark and John leave out the Peter bit, but you know what they do leave in there? Jesus walking on the water, comforting his disciples with the words, I am. Does this mean we're not supposed to live out in faith, right? Step out in big ways? No. But we've got to build our foundation first in the right place. We can't make our foundation that we're going to just eliminate poverty. Although that's a good thing. We can't you know, make our foundation that we are going to eliminate human trafficking, although that is something that we should be working together against. These great and seemingly impossible things that we aspire to, they need to come out of an understanding that Jesus, the word, God himself, is greater and above all of these other things. And we need to see him for who he is and love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, out of that love for him, through the power given to us through his spirit, we act in faith. And I think that's what Peter set out to do, I think. Not to do something great, but to be with Jesus, doing what seems impossible through the power of a loving and gracious God, and in so doing, being with him. In John 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What is the end result here? The Father's glory not ours, in being able to accomplish something great. His glory has to be behind our acts of faith. Otherwise, they're not acts of faith. It's just doing what we want to do and hoping God will pick up the check. It's a faith that comes out of love for and fear of the God of the universe. So following Jesus can be difficult, and following Jesus can be easy. The last thing that we're going to look at here in our passage is that following Jesus can be difficult and easy. I told you, note-takers, this is all on you. We see four things under here, and we're going to fly through them, so see if you can keep up. Look at verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! So following Jesus can be difficult, 
A, because fear. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. We already know this world is scary, right? We don't have that promise of the sweet, sunny path through the woods and the flowers. Jesus promised us that in this world we would have trouble. For Peter, getting out of the boat seemed easy until he got onto the waves, and then he sees the gravity of the situation. Oh, no. You ever been bungee jumping? No? Okay. I'll, leave this. I'll do the illustration anyway. It's written here. It's exciting. You get there, and you watch people do it. You sign the waiver that says you might die. You pay 10 grand or whatever it is, and then you wait with excitement, and then they call you. It's not 10 grand. They call your name. They hook you up to the rope, and then, well, it's not a rope either, it's, it doesn't matter. You, when they hook you up, this is what I remember, they put the thing on me, I walk out onto the platform, and I look, and all of a sudden I remember signing the waiver that said I could die, right? The situation sinks in. Yee! The harness and the gear and the safety stuff, all of a sudden just doesn't mean anything. And you watch people, I didn't do this because I'm strong, but you watch people like sit down and cry. I can't do this. And then they need the people to move along. So they actually push you off. It's good times because they need the next people to go. Peter became afraid and began to sink. What had Jesus said to him only moments earlier? Take heart. I am. I'm God. Don't be afraid. So Peter wasn't afraid until he was. That's our story, right? This happens to all of us. We're liars if we say we're not afraid when it comes to God's call in our lives. What if he asks me to stop buying stuff? What if people think less of me? What if he asks me to forgive the person that really hurt me? Those are real fears, and they can be debilitating. We could stand here all day and list the things that we're afraid of. Some of us are really good at that. Jesus could stand next to that list and check each one of them off saying, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. And even that's scary because we have to trust that he is who he says he is. All of us have been hurt and betrayed and struggle with trust. The good news is that even in the midst of our fear, which is really just a lack of faith, Jesus gives us another gift to make things easier, which is our next piece. Following Jesus can be easy because grace. When he saw the wind, Peter, he was afraid. He began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. One of the things that sticks out to me here is the choice of words. Does anyone know what Peter's name means? Come on, you can do this. This is interactive. No? Rock. Ah, some of you know. Rocks don't float. It's a cool, scripture's pretty awesome when you get down to some of these stories. Unless it's a very small rock. When you place a rock on the surface of the lake, what does it do when you let it go? Straight to the bottom. It sinks like a rock, right? This rock, though, Peter, when his faith falters, what are we told happens? He begins to sink. He begins to sink. It's not just kaboosh, right? Which it should have been. But given that we don't see Peter drop like a rock, we're still experiencing a miracle, And that miracle is the grace that Jesus is working with, his patience, his mercy. Peter's lack of faith could have had him at the bottom of the sea, but that was not Jesus' way. One of my favorite excerpts from the book of Psalms is 
145 verses 8 and 9, which say, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Did you know that there is grace even when we don't have faith? When it's faltering? Even when we replace Jesus as the object of our attention with something else, he's patient with us and gives us space to return to him and to call to him for help. Doesn't mean we should take advantage of that patience, but his patience and kindness should lead us to repentance. And that's exactly what we see here. Peter's faith, while sputtering, isn't completely done. He looks back to Jesus and says, Lord, save me. And Jesus does. He says that Jesus immediately reached down and took hold of Peter. Look, he knows you're scared. He knows your faith is wavering. He loves you. He wants to pull you out of the waves. Cry out to him. He's a God of grace, the giver of good gifts. Following Jesus can be easy because of his grace. Following Jesus can also be difficult because of faith or lack thereof. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why is it so hard to follow Jesus sometimes, to believe him? I think it's because that even though we say we believe him, in a lot of ways, we don't. Jesus addresses Peter as one of little faith. Not no faith, but little faith. We hear Jesus say these same words elsewhere in the book of Matthew. In verses, or chapter 6, verse 30, Jesus says, But if God so closes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? In chapter 8, verse 26, again, in a boat in the middle of the storm, he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He uses this phrase a couple more times in Matthew, always calling people to have faith, to trust him. We need to have more faith. We have no good reason to doubt God, right? No good reason for fear. He has shown himself time and time again to be greater than everything. The command to not be afraid is given over 300 times in Scripture. What are we so afraid of? Good news is, when we do fear, we are not bound to guilt. We don't have to sit in guilt. We need to just beat ourselves, or pardon me, we don't need to just beat ourselves up over our lack of faith. We have to ask God for more of it. Jesus, I believe, right, you know this passage when he's responded to help my unbelief because ultimately it's Jesus himself that makes following him easier following Jesus can be easy because the last thing is because of Jesus verse 32 and 33 when they got into the boat the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of God In the last 24 hours, they saw him feed thousands with a few morsels. They saw him walk on water. They heard him say, I am. They saw Peter walk on water. They saw Jesus save Peter in the water. And then when they got into the boat, what happened? The storm stopped. In John's record of this, we're told that when they got into the boat, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. (laughs) Right? Have you put yourselves in those stories ever? Or is it just like looking in? 
He got in the boat and it teleported to the land. That's amazing. Why does Jesus do, say all these things? When they see what happens, they say to him, truly you are the son of God. They worship him. They give him glory, which I think is ultimately the point of this whole text. Ultimately, there are lots of bits in here that are important, but we need to take heart. You know, those one of these, we need to have faith. We need to expect God to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. Right? We read that in his word. But there's a bigger point to this. We read a passage in Ephesians chapter 3 that ends by saying we need to do all of these things. Take heart, have faith, trust him, worship him, because he is, I am. And the result is this in Ephesians 3. The result is his glory, God's glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is who he says he is. That's why we sing. That's why we live our lives the way that we do. Because nobody wants to do that for a liar. And that's not who he is. He is great and awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the fact that you are who you say you are. I am certain I would have been with the disciples. I am certain I would have been afraid. I am certain I wouldn't have believed. I'm certain I would have been terrified when you said, I am. But I am grateful that you have not looked at my lack of faith and said, I don't love you. I love that your love for me is not based on who I am and what I have done. That's such good news, God. And I pray that we would all be able to live in that and to trust you to be who you say you are and to continue to give us more and more faith. Amen.